Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, it's a privilege this morning for us to have a guest teacher with us. His name is Greg Kokel, and he's a founder and president of Stand to Reason, an organization dedicated to defending the Christian faith. And the way that Greg would tell his story is that at one point, he thought he was too smart to become a Christian, but then he met Christ and he spent his life defending the Christian faith wherever his travels would take him. His teaching has been focused on, focused on the family radio. He's been interviewed on CBN and BBC. He's debated some high-profile atheists on television and on radio. He's a well-known author. He's published more than 180 articles, taught at over 60 universities across the United States and Canada. And uh, presently, he is an adjunct professor at Biola University in California, and he travels and speaks at conferences. And wherever his travels take him, he contends for the Christian faith. And so we're privileged to have you here with us this morning, Greg. And why don't we give uh, a warm Center Street welcome to Greg Kokel. Thanks, Greg. Well, thank you. I, uh, man, I need the warm welcome, right? Because I got off the plane three days ago from Southern California where my home is, and I have been in the second stage of hypothermia ever since. In fact, you know, truth be told, I got long johns on underneath these trousers. I probably shouldn't take time to say this because I'm already going to go over time today, but I cannot... I could not miss an opportunity to thank your church for this wonderful worship that we experienced this morning. Uh, I mean, to, to start worship with Bach, I mean, that is incomparable. And then amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And then when we got to there as a redeemer, man, I... Lo- I that broke my heart. I, I just, it was almost too much. So thank you so much for that magnificent, magnificent worship. And I hope we get a second shot at this at the next service because, uh, and then you can carry me out in a stretcher. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying it is fa- That, by the way, I, I have hardly had a sweeter time of worship in any church at any time than I did this morning. So... I travel a bit and uh, oftentimes get, a, get chances to talk to people on airplanes about uh, spiritual things, and I, 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 look, I try to be ready, alert for opportunities like that. And um, once I was talking to a stockbroker, and he asked me what I did for a living, and I said, well, I'm a writer and a radio talk show host uh, 25 years now, and um, I, I speak publicly. And so he asked me, well, what do you write about? What's your show about? Uh, what do you speak about? And that's an opportunity for me to talk a little bit about my own convictions. But I, I run into a problem at this point because um, I want to tell him about my convictions, but I don't want him to make a, a mistake that most people make when it comes to religion. In both your country and my country, uh, people, I think, characteristically uh, think of religion as a spiritual fantasy club. It's you, you find the club that you like that makes you feel good, you know, but has no tie really to reality. It's just a sub, subjective thing. And so my comments with the stockbroker are going to be guided by a very particular way of characterizing Christianity. It's a way that I think many Christians themselves have not fully grasped. And it's important not to make a mistake on this. Because if we're not clear on some things, we're going to have a very different, difficult time when we go into our culture to make the case for our point of view in dealing with two of the, the, the biggest obstacles we're going to encounter. The first one is the problem of evil. It's the biggest objection to the ex- existence of God. How could God allow so much evil in this world? And for Christians even, they say, how could God allow this to happen to me? And so if we don't understand this thing... Clearly, we're going to stumble at that point, and we're going to stumble at another point as well. And that is, why is Jesus the only way of salvation? This is wildly politically incorrect. It is narrow-minded. It is arrogant. It is intolerant. That's the way it's characterized back to us. And oftentimes, we don't know how to answer that question. 
because we don't understand something very foundational and basic. Now, what is that thing? Well, let me ask you a rhetorical question. If someone were to come up to you and ask this question, what would you answer? And the question is this, what is Christianity? What is Christianity? Now, you might say, well, Christianity is a religion. Uh, it's uh, maybe a way to God. It's a way to live your life that's satisfying. Uh, you might say that it's a relationship with God. It's, a, it's not a religion. It's a relationship, you might say. And I, I understand all of those things. And all of those things are true as far as they go, but I don't think they go far enough. They're all too thin. I think the correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. In other words, it's, a, it's an account or a description or a depiction of the way the world actually is. It's a view of the world. It's a worldview, I guess, is another way of putting it. And this picture is made up of pieces that fit together properly so you, you can see it. It's kind of like a puzzle. You put all the pieces of the puzzle together properly, you get the big picture. Now, of course, in order to get the picture right with a puzzle, you have to have all the right pieces, huh? And you can't have pieces from other puzzles mixed in. You can't be missing pieces to get the full picture. The problem is for many Christians, here's the way their, their puzzle picture of reality looks. <laughs> it's just a bunch of pieces scattered on the ground. Now, I know there are a whole lot of people in this room right now that are really annoyed <laughs> because all those little pieces are on the ground. Those Christians have never put the pieces together. They've never seen the big picture, and consequently, they don't know if they're missing important pieces. They don't know if they got pieces from other worldview puzzles mixed in by accident and consequently might be taken captive by other worldviews because of this confusion. So how do we put the pieces of our puzzle together properly? There's a trick if you're a puzzle worker, and uh, some people think it's cheating, but uh, we can do it. You look at what? The cover. You look at the picture, the big picture, and this allows you to put the pieces together in an accurate fashion. What I would like to do is I would like this morning to show you the puzzle's cover, the picture, the big picture of the Christian view of reality so you never get lost in the details again. Now, so far I've said that Christianity is, is, a, is first and foremost a view of reality. It's like a puzzle that has pieces. You put it together, you've got to put it together accurately to get this big picture. Well, I'm going to give you a different way of understanding what a worldview is. A worldview is kind of like a story. And nowadays, I think this is a good way to put it. The Christian story is like many other stories. It, 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 it deals with the great issues that people struggle with. It deals with the great questions everyone asks. It's a, it's a story about a peace shattered by rebellion. It's a story about love and betrayal. It's a story about a conflict and self-sacrifice and ultimately redemption. It's a great story. Now, when you think about it, every story, if it's a good one, has four parts. It has a beginning. It has conflict. Something goes wrong has conflict resolution, and then finally it has the ending it, where everything comes together. It's a, a restoration, so to speak. They live happily ever after. Now, the Christian story starts a long time ago, and how long ago is a matter of debate. I'm not concerned about that. One thing that does concern me, this though, is that you understand this. The Christian story is different from other stories in a very significant way. The story doesn't start with the words, once upon a time. There's a reason for that. The writers did not intend you to understand the story to be a fairy tale or a myth. I have uh, two daughters. I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. I know you're thinking, he's got a 7-year-old? He's an old guy. That's weird. What's he going to do when she becomes a teenager? If I'm lucky, I'll be dead by them. So I'm covered. Anyway, my eldest, Annabeth, uh, when she was younger, she had read the, 
the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and she I said, Papa, is that story about the wardrobe and Peter and Susan and Lucy and, and Edmund and the lion, is that a true story? She was six years old. I said, uh, well, honey, it's no, it's not, a, it's not a true story. But I explained to her, the Christian story is not like the Narnia story. It's, it's, it isn't a make-believe story. It is a true story. And here's, I mean, uh, the word true in its standard sense. I don't mean true for me. I mean true to reality. That's what I mean. I mean that the things the story describes actually exist. The events the story describes actually took place. The story is about the way the world actually is. That's the kind of story I'm telling. It's history. It's not fiction. This is another thing that not all Christians are entirely clear on. And this was the point that I was trying to make with the stockbroker. I didn't want him to think that this is my spiritual fantasy. This is my spiritual fairy tale. I I wanted him to understand that I'm talking about hardcore reality. So let me give you the backbone of the Christian story. It's kind of like the frame of the picture. It's also the storyline, and it's the historical timeline. That is, it tells the most important things that happened in the order that they took place. And the backbone, the outline, just consists of five words. You could just put a word on each of your fingers or your hand. In fact, uh, about three or four months ago when my, when my youngest was six and I was teaching this, she was sitting in the front row of my church, and there as I'm ticking off the five things, she's ticking them off. So if she could get it, I think you guys can get it, right? And here they are, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. And here I mean the final resurrection to reward or judgment. Let me give it to you again. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. That's the big picture. It's both the plot line and the timeline. You have a beginning and you have the end. And in fact, it's... it's, It's so straightforward, the logical order of those five elements. I bet you, you already know them. Can you match my six-year-old? Let's try. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. That's it. The story starts with God. He created everything, including the most valuable thing in all creation, man. But something went terribly wrong. Man got himself into a heap of trouble. And so God initiated a rescue plan and became a man himself in the person of Jesus. Then Jesus did something special to rescue man from his problem that culminated on a cross. And the decision you make about what he did on the cross will determine what happens to you at the final resurrection. God, man, Jesus, cross resurrection. Uh, Notice you have all the parts of a good story. You have a beginning, you have the conflict, you have conflict resolution, and you have an ending. So what I'd like to do with the rest of the time we have this morning is I would like to tell you that story. I'd like to give you the big picture of Christianity. I want to tell you the story of reality. Now, every story has a beginning. Here's the way ours begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I I count this as the second most brilliant or significant line in the story. I'll tell you what I think the first is in a bit. But I want you to notice something important uh, about the story from the beginning. A few things, actually. First, the story starts with God. Why? Why is He the very first piece of the Christian story? Because He is the central character. The story is about Him. If you want to teach your children or anyone else for that matter about the Christian story, this is probably a good place to start. You start at the beginning, you start at the foundation. God. By contrast, the story does not start with man because the story is not about us. When I was younger, my mother would say to me, Gregory, of course, you know a chastisement's coming when mom uses your full name. Gregory, the world does not revolve, you could probably finish this, (laughs) around you, because your parents, your mother told you that too, you know, and your mother was right, and that's why you tell the same thing to your kids, because the world does not revolve around us, but sometimes we get confused on that point. People in general get confused, and even many Christians 
who, dis- who face discouragement and disillusionment and defeat in their Christian life, which, by the way, are standard fare for Christians. You read First Peter, the whole book is about suffering Christians. You read the book of Hebrews, written to suffering Christians. You read First and Second Thessalonians, written to suffering Christians. I mean, you, you can't hardly read a book that doesn't address the reality of living in the fallen world, even though you know the Lord. But you see, then Christians, when they encounter this, they don't expect it because they're not reading carefully. And what happens? They think, why, God, did you allow this to happen to me? Because they think that the story is about them. They mistakenly think, and here, they mistakenly think that the, it, it's about God's plan for their life. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about their life for God's plan. God comes first. We come second. Okay, the, the story then is about God first. Second, everything belongs to God. Why? Because He made it all. You, you make it, you own it. It all belongs to Him. Everyone, not just Christians. Our lives are not our own. They belong to Him. Third, I want you to see this, the theme of the story, and it's right there on the first line. A lot of people have tried to figure out what is the main theme of the Bible, and we've come up with, I think, useful things like love or redemption or, or um, uh, forgiveness or, you know, a host of other things that are all part of the story, but it's not the central thing. The central thing is right in the first line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you have a king who creates a domain. You have a king and a dom. <laughs> you have a kingdom. The very first line sets the stage. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about God's appropriate rule over everything that is His, which is everything. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised when John the Baptist comes preaching, what? The kingdom of God. And then Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God, and then all the rest that Jesus trained to follow after Him come preaching the kingdom of God. It is not just salvation. It is rescuing people to bring them back in to the, to the fellowship with their sovereign that God originally intended. The kingdom of God. God is in charge, to put it simply. Fourth, notice that God in this story is distinct from the rest of His creation. God isn't the world. He's distinct from the world that He made. Nature's not God. The planet's not a person. That is a different story. The planet in our story is a thing. The sun and the moon, they don't have names. They're not to be worshipped. They have functions in our story. And finally, I want you to notice that reality now consists of two very different kinds of things consists of immaterial mind and, and physical matter. Immaterial stuff and material stuff, non-physical stuff and physical stuff. Uh, in our story, both are real. So this is a story in which material things like birds and babies and asteroids and atoms, they all fit in. And it's a story in which immaterial things like spirits and souls and minds and miracles, they're equally at home. And this is important to see in light of two competing stories because ours isn't the only story in play in our culture, is it? There are two other major competing stories. One competing story says that matter is all there is. That physical things, molecules clashing in the universe. Their story begins in the beginning, the particles. One famous person, Carl Sagan, put it this way, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Do you notice it almost sounds like the Gloria Patri? Because it's a religious statement. There's nothing scientific about that statement. No God, no souls, no heaven or hell, no miracles, no morality. Sounds like John Lennon. So you might want to call this matterism. The standard name is materialism, or maybe naturalism or physicalism, because it is physical things governed by natural law, all basically the same. And this is nothing like our story. It's only part of the story, actually. And this is the story 
that atheists think is true. Now, you have an alternate point of view that's in competition with these two other stories, ours and the matterism story. And, and that is that mind is all that exists. And in this case, it would be God's mind. And here I don't mean what the Christian story means by a personal God. Rather, what's intended here is a universal mind that pervades everything because it is the only thing. Everything is God on this view. And there are many variations of this uh, view. Um, Sects of Hinduism hold this view. Eastern religions, New Age, Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, these are proponents of this view. But I want you to know that this is not the Christian story. This is a different story entirely. Now, sometimes it borrows puzzle pieces from our story and tries to plug them in into their story. And so those who are untutored sometimes get confused and think they're talking about the same story uh, when they are not. And this happens because they don't fully understand the Christian story. So the first piece of our puzzle is God. He exists. He's the creator of everything else from nothing else. The world he made is his kingdom. He owns it. It belongs to him. He is different from his creation. God's world includes physical stuff, and non-physical stuff, both are real. And one last thing. According to this story, our story, when God made everything, it was exactly the way His noble mind intended. Everything was just right. Everything fit together precisely the way He wanted it to fit together. And this is just another way of saying that everything God made was good. Now I want to introduce another character in our story. He's the next because he's the most important character in the story after God. An entire chapter in our story is devoted just to the creation of man. So you got God-man. Now in one way, man is uh, like many other things in creation. He's made of physical stuff. All right? He has a physical body, which is obvious. He's not a little God. He is creaturely. He is contingent. Some people are a little confused on this point. But he is also made of non-physical stuff, too. Remember, in our world, there are both kinds of things. Man has a soul, an invisible self. Your soul is what you're aware of when you introspect. And this is where all the important functions of your mind take place, your thoughts, your beliefs, your sensations, your intentions, your acts of will. All of these are soulish functions. And, and the Bible teaches, actually, that all sentient creatures have souls. So, Fido has a soul. <laughs> it's not a very complicated soul, but this has been the teaching of the church from the beginning. What separates human souls from animal souls is the kind of soul humans have. And in this respect, man is not like any other created thing. He has a rational soul that bears the image of God himself. The imprint of God is upon that soul. And so in an absolutely unique way, man is wonderful. Man is not God, but he's not cosmic junk either. He has purpose, he has value, he has meaning far above everything else in creation. And it's this imprint of God that gives human beings their transcendent value. It also is what grounds all of our obligations to each other. We are, we are to act in a certain way towards each other precisely because we are not animals merely. You tell your kids, don't treat each other like animals because we're more than that. Now, some people are confused on this point nowadays. I just want to make an observation. Do you notice that whenever... People work really hard to try to make animals equal with man. They don't raise animals up. They, dri- they drag human beings down. It is a devaluing of human beings that results from that. Now, this likeness between man and God makes it possible for man to have a unique friendship with God. It's, it's, he's still our king. He's still our sovereign. But he can also be our friend. And some people refer to this as having a relationship with God. That's why he made us. He gave us everything that we needed to be happy, but the most important thing that he gave us was himself. Now, there's another sad detail to this story, though. 
because that man was capable of living in harmony with God under his rulership in his kingdom. However, he could also betray the friendship. He could rebel, and he did. He could be good, but he also could be bad. This is called moral freedom, and man ended up using his moral freedom for something ugly. Instead of using it to honor God, he used it to rebel against God. He didn't want to be under God. He wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to be master of his own fate, captain of his own ship. He wanted independence. And when he chose rebellion rather than obedience, everything changed. Man is still beautiful, but he's broken now. There's a huge problem. He's desperately fallen. He's morally twisted. He's in active rebellion. He's spiritually dead. He's unplugged from the only source of life that can give his own life meaning. He's incapable of reconnecting with the God who made him. And he's also enslaved to two masters. One of them is the master he obeyed rather than God. The story calls that master Satan, and this is not a guy in red tights with a pitchfork. This is a real, spiritual, powerful being that has an unbelievable influence in the world four different times. Towards the end of the story, writers say that the whole world is under the power of that evil one called Satan. But there's another foe that man has now, and that is his own twisted and corrupted nature that he is now enslaved to, and the story calls this the flesh. Man is guilty. He's enslaved. He is twisted. He is lost. And the king is angry. Now, a lot of people don't like that part of the story. They say, well, isn't God a God of love? Yes, but that's not the whole of it. How would you feel if you made everything perfect and somebody did something stupid and messed it all up, right? Is God a vengeful God? Is that what you're saying? And my response is, look, he's no more vengeful than any good, fair, noble, just judge who must pass sentence on lawbreakers. And for man, this is very bad news. Now what? Well, what could have happened is he could have passed sentence on the lawbreakers. I gave you everything. I made it perfect. I gave you myself. All you had to do was follow my lead. I'm your loving father, and you rebelled against me. You spit in my face. To hell with you. He could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, God initiated a rescue plan. By the way, I want you to see something. This is why there's evil in the world. Because man used his freedom for ill. The world is broken because man broke it, and he broke himself. And a broken man in a broken world produces broken circumstances. This shouldn't surprise us. It is part of our story. People say, well, how does it account for your story? How does it explain these kinds of things? And, and my response is, it doesn't explain it. It predicts it. It's right at home in the story. And the story's not over yet. This is chapter 3 of the story. The rest of the story is a resolution of this problem. So with man lost and helpless, God himself steps into the picture in a very unique way to initiate a rescue operation, God, man, Jesus. Now, there are two important things that you need to know about Jesus, and neither have anything to do with his general teachings, by the way. And, and what I mean by that, if you're, if you're merely taken with Jesus' teaching, you've missed the point. Those two things are who Jesus was and what he came to do who Jesus was and what he came to do. This is called the person and the work of Christ. So who was Jesus? Well, he was a real human being, that's for sure. He was a man of flesh and blood. He had his feet planted in the dirt. He's a person of history. He had a human birth. He had a rational human soul, just like all of us do. He had human feelings and human limitations. He became hungry and tired. He agonized and wept. He felt compassion. He felt pain. He felt suffering. He felt betrayal. 
Everything that is true about our essential humanity was true about Jesus, but there's something more. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't just a man. Jesus was also God. And the story is very clear on that point. Remember how our story began? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me tell you how Jesus' story begins. In the beginning, same words, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Another one, in other words, the one who is referred to here in the beginning of his story is the same one who is in the beginning of the whole story. God become man. In fact, this becomes clear in verse 14, where John, the beloved disciple who lived with Jesus three and a half years, records, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that, my friends, in my humble opinion, is the greatest line in the story. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's pretty cool. You make everything. Anyway, you got to give the nod to that, right? But to become a man, that's just not just awesome. That is sublime. For God to take on humanity to Himself, that's without parallel. So, Jesus was the God-man who started it all. And that's kind of weird <laughs> when you think about, about it. He was one person who had two nat natures. He was truly human, He was truly divine, but He's still an individual person. He was God with us, Emmanuel, right? Now, in order for that to happen, I want you to think about it. Something unimaginable had to take place. It's wonderful, but it's unimaginable. Think of how you would speak to a frightened child. If you were, had to deal with a child that was really frightened and really in a bad way, and you would start talking to that child, and you would crouch down, and you would get lower, and you would get on the level of that child to try to encourage and comfort that child. And in the same way, when God came to meet us, He got low. <laughs> he got small. He stepped down. Listen, although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a man, he got down. As a man, he became a servant, he got down. As a servant, he died the death of a common criminal, he got down. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Some of you are familiar with it, but you never saw it quite in this sense. God got low, but He never ceased being God. He set aside His privileges, but He did not give up His divine nature. So as to the first question, who is Jesus? Je the answer is Jesus is the God-man who humbled Himself to come down to earth as a man. Now, I want you to notice something. This is not the God of Islam. I'm sorry, this is not the Jesus of Islam. Islam has, the Quran has a Jesus, okay? Not this Jesus. This is not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's a different story. It's not the Jesus of Mormonism. It is not the Jesus of the New Age. Oprah Winfrey. That's all of those different stories. Now our second question, and this, there's much more debate on this than there ought to be. Why did Jesus come? What did He come to do? Now here I'm asking about the sine qua non, that, that without it, which, if you remove this element, you have no more Christianity. What is the central purpose? And I'll tell you one thing it was not. And I know this is a little controversial with some people, but just let me say it clearly and qualify it and we'll move on. Jesus did not come to restore social justice. That is not the reason He came. The story doesn't say that's why He came. Indeed, you can read through the entire account of Jesus' life given by John, the very last gospel written, the penultimate 
statement of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, its purpose, and you will not find a single reference to anything that might be construed as social justice. Now, there are other gospels that include some of that. I'm not saying those things are not important. I am saying those things are secondary to a fault compared to the first thing. And if somebody gets caught up in the secondary things and missed the first thing, they've missed it all, is what I'm saying. So what was the reason he came? Well, what does this story actually say? Let me tell you. God told Joseph in a dream, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That's Yeshua, Joshua, Savior, is what that means. And he will save his people from their sins. The Apostle Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In Jesus' own words, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom that is a payment to purchase something, a ransom for many. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came that the world might be saved through Him. These are statements scattered all over Jesus' own particular part of the story. He said these things. Now, to save means to rescue from imminent danger. We're in danger. Jesus came to rescue us from that. Here's an important question. What's the danger? What is it that Jesus is rescuing us from? I'll tell you the answer to that question. Jesus came to rescue us from the Father. Remember, the king is angry. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can throw both body and soul in hell. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the writer of Hebrews says. I mean, this is clear. That's the bad news. (laughs) Now, how did Jesus rescue us? What did he do? And now you're going to see why it's so important for us to understand clearly that the problem is that the king is angry. He did two things. First, he lived a life before the king that we should have lived, perfect obedience. He did what we didn't do. Second, he made a trade, his life for ours. He said to the father who was angry at us, Father, take me instead. And this trade took place in a small outcropping outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. We know it as Calvary, the place of the cross. God, man, Jesus, cross. A crucifixion is a cruel form of execution. It's generally reserved for slaves and rebels. Um, Those who die, and all died on the cross, all that were put there, they die from... um, Suffocation, actually, eventually. They stretch their arms out, their legs give out, and they can't breathe anymore, and they suffocate to death. For Jesus, though, the pain of the cross paled in the face of a greater anguish, a deeper torment that could not be seen. No words can even ever capture it. More excruciating than the nails that pinned his body to the timbers more dreadful than the lashes that ripped the flesh from his body. It's a dark, terrible, incalculable agony, an infinite misery that God the Father, the angry one, unleashed upon his sinless son as if he were guilty of an immeasurable evil. Now, why punish the innocent one? Well, on Jesus' cross at the top was a certificate that listed his crime, alleged crime against Caesar. King of the Jews, guilty of sedition, and the cross was punishment for that crime. And characteristically, in, in that, in that um, this is called a certificate of debt, by the way, and they also had this in, in the economics of the time. And in the ancient Near East, when debts were paid, they were often officially canceled with a single Greek word stamped on it. Uh, the Greek word was tetelestai, and it simply meant paid, like a canceled check, finished, completed, whatever. But being king of the Jews is really not the crime that Jesus pays for because hidden to all but the Father is another certificate of debt that Paul says in Colossians 2 was nailed 
to Jesus' cross. And what certificate was that? Well, that was a certificate of decrees against us. Not Jesus' crimes, but our crimes. You flip towards the end of the story, you see the books are open. People are judged according to their works. The Father is making a list and He's checking it twice. He knows every single thing that anybody has ever done wrong. Many people think, well, I can get to God on my own. I'm a a basically good person. I'm no Hitler. (laughs) Good. But you're no Jesus Christ either. And Hitler's not the standard. Jesus is. You want to go on your own merits? Fine. God has recorded every single thing you've ever done wrong, every thought, word, and deed. He misses nothing. Jesus said, every idle word a man speaks, he shall give account of in the day of judgment. It's all there. And what Paul says is God has taken that rap sheet of ours, and he has nailed it to the cross of Christ. And in the end, Jesus makes a transaction with the Father. It happens in the darkness that shrouds Calvary from the sixth to the ninth hour. And punishment adequate for all of the crimes of all of humanity, every murder, every theft, every lustful glance, every hidden act of vice, every monstrous deed of evil, punishment adequate for every crime of every man who ever lived, Jesus takes on himself as if he were guilty of all. And when he dies, I mean, arguably, it's not the cross that takes his life. He doesn't die of suffocation. What it looks like is that when the final payment is made, the full debt is paid, when the justice of God is finally satisfied, Jesus just dismisses his spirit. But before he does, a single Greek word escapes his lips, to telestai. Now, you're Your translations translate this, it is finished, but Jesus isn't saying, you know, I'm glad that's over with. He's saying, I've done it. I've accomplished it. I've finished the task. I have paid the complete price. The divine transaction is complete. Jesus takes our guilt. We take His goodness. Let me say that again. Jesus takes our guilt. We take His goodness. That's the trade. It's called substitutionary atonement, justification, if you will. But here's the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it wasn't an accident. It was planned. (laughs) 700 years earlier, One great Hebrew prophet wrote this, surely our griefs he himself bore. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way, but the Lord, the Father, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Of course, that's Isaiah 53. And friends, this is why Jesus is the only way. He is the only one who solved the problem. No other man did this. No other person could. Jesus alone, the perfect Son of God, paid the debt for whoever trusts in Him so that they would not perish but have everlasting life. And without Him, we cannot be saved from our overwhelming guilt. Without Him paying, we have to pay ourselves, and that would take forever. Now, what I've just described is a gift. It cannot be earned It can only be received. You must trust Jesus for it. This is what the story means by faith. Not a leap of faith, but a step of trust in the only one who is capable of rescuing you. And when you trust, you are made alive inside. You are plugged back in. That's what the story means by being born again. 
And what you decide to do about that offer makes the difference in the final piece of our puzzle, everything else that follows, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. And this is going to be very short because I'm almost out of time. We know very little about this, but what we know is both exciting and terrifying, and some of what I'm going to tell you here may scare you, and my response is, fine. It is right to be frightened about something really dangerous. There is good news and bad news. Here's the good news. Everybody lives forever. How about that? Wow. Everybody lives forever. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Everybody lives forever. All human beings will be raised from the dead never to die again. Some will be raised to eternal reward, but others will be raised to eternal punishment. You see, at the final event of history, as we know it, one of two things is going to happen. That will be perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice is punishment for everything that you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. Or perfect mercy, forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. All who have accepted the mercy in Christ will go on to reward. Then the king said to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But all who have rejected God's mercy in Christ, either actively or passively, doesn't matter, will be judged by their works. It's a just judgment. You want to be judged based on how good you are? Fine, God will give you that, but the outcome will not be pretty. You will be punished. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And by the way, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus filled with love and forgiveness. Yes, grace and truth. Yes, but part of the truth is this. And he does not mince words about it. This is at the end of his life where these words are spoken. It's almost as if he's saying, don't miss this. At the beginning of his, of his ministry, Sermon on the Mount, he says, the, the way is narrow that leads to life. The way is broad that leads to destruction. Same message fore and aft. Let me tell you two things that you need to know about hell other than that it's real. First, hell is conscious torment. Jesus talked about the rich man in Hades seeing Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he said, just have Lazarus please touch his finger to water and put it on my lips. I am in such torment in this place. Second, hell is banishment from God's presence forever. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. That banishment will last forever. That is that you will never be released. You will never disappear. There will be no escape. And the suffering will never end ever. The clock will never run out. The clock will not even start ticking. Everyone will not live happily ever after. So the story ends with everyone living forever, those who continue in the rebellion banished to a place of misery and darkness and utter aloneness and ruin forever. But those who cease their rebellion, who surrendered to their rightful king, who received his pardon, who became members of his family, these will live with him in a new world, enjoying the perfect life he intended for us at the first experiencing life better than the best we could ever imagine forever. Now, I've just told you a story. If you are a Christian, this is your story. And if you are not a Christian, this is also your story. Because this isn't just any story. It's a true story. It's the story of the way things really are. This is reality that I'm describing. 
The story has five elements, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. I can tell a story in a single sentence. It's a long one. Here it goes. God, the creator of the universe, in order to rescue man from punishment for his rebellion, took on humanity and Jesus the Savior to die on a cross and rise from the dead so that in the final resurrection, we could enjoy a wonderful friendship with our sovereign Lord in the kind of perfect world our hearts have always yearned for. Now you know the story. And you also know what's been wrong with your life. You. <laughs> you and your rebellion and your guilt. And now you know how to fix it. You bend your knee. You beat your breast. You say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I invite you to accept your pardon now, and maybe this morning is the time to do that. Accept it while you can, turn, follow Jesus. Because this is not just a story. It's a true story. It is the true story. It's the story of reality. Savior, we thank you for your magnificent story. We thank you that you have opened the doors to take us in rebellious people, sinners, twisted, broken, beautiful, but fallen. You welcome us back, making that welcome possible by becoming a man yourself to take upon your body the punishment for our crimes against you. Thank you. Thank you. May we never cease saying thank you for that. And if we have not received it, may we be humbled to the dust in this moment by your Spirit and plead for your forgiveness for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for teaching us this morning. As Greg concluded his sermon, you heard him invite you to perhaps meet Jesus this morning and give your life to him. I'd encourage you to do that if you haven't already done so. And for others of you, if you came here this morning just wanting someone to pray with you, we have prayer partners that will be available at the front here. And um, so please just come forward after we're finished here. And now may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have a great week, church. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.